Welcome to Pillar of Truth. Today we're beginning a series of messages that will hopefully encourage you to pray more. You'll learn what to pray for and why we should stay diligent in prayer, how to keep on praying even when you might feel like giving up. And Travis, even though Scripture makes it clear that prayer its not only an important aspect of the believer's life, but it's also a blessing, it's a privilege, yet we need series like this, we need teaching like this, because it's so easy for us to neglect it. Why do you think it's so easy for believers to neglect prayer? I think when we get into the disciplines of our Christian life, you think about, say, like church attendance or ministering to people or Bible reading and prayer, on that list of different things that we do and participate in, prayer seems to be the one that people struggle with the most. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that prayer is one of those things that requires an exercise of faith in a very pure way. Like where you can read your Bible, it's a physical medium where you can see what you're reading. It's in black and white, it's in print, and you actually are going through this exercise of of interacting with something that's material and physical in front of you. When you minister with people, you see people. When you go to church and you sing and you pray and you're, you're in the church service and listening to the preaching of the Word, all that is physical in nature. It's got a physical component to it. Prayer is the only discipline that I can think of that's purely immaterial, spiritual, because we are praying to the unseen God. He is invisible. He's not speaking back to us, you know, despite what some quarters of evangelicalism will tell you. You're not getting personal words from God. He's not audibly speaking to you. He's not giving you that still small voice or whatever it is. You are praying to the one who has already spoken to you. He's put his words in print. And so you've already heard his words. And then when you respond, you respond in prayer and you're praying to someone you cannot see. You're praying to someone who is not answering you back in an audible way. You're not interacting with a physical being. You're interacting with an immaterial being who is God. It's a very different practice of a Christian discipline. And I think that when you're young in the faith, You're also weaker in the faith. You haven't exercised those spiritual muscles. And I think as you grow in your Christian walk, you grow in your maturity, you encounter a lot of trials, you see your own limitations. I think the older you get, you start to see more of your limitations. You see more of your need as families grow, as your own body gets weaker. You kind of wane in your strength and wane in your, your wisdom. You find more and more need And so it drives you to prayer, and you start to exercise those muscles more and more. So even in in the waning years of your body's strength, there's a waxing strong of faith, which is expressed in prayer to God, the one you cannot see, but you trust fully. So I think that drives you more and more to prayer. Well, thank you, Travis. That's so helpful for us, and let's keep that in mind now as we get into today's lesson. Well, we are just speeding our way along through the Gospel of Luke, aren't we? Already to chapter 18. So you can turn there to Luke 18, and we're going to look at a crucial, crucial concern that comes out of Jesus' teaching on eschatology. We are turning the page into another chapter, entering into chapter 18. But you need to know that this is still the same occasion, and we are still in a section on the last days. The section started back in chapter 17, verse 20, with the Pharisees' question about the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus answered that question rather quickly, briefly, but clearly. 
And then he turned to his disciples. And for the rest of chapter 17, as we saw, he teaches them. When he started teaching them, when he turned to address them in Luke 17, 22, he really revealed there, he spoke of a, a delayed return. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see. Remember, we talked about that being he's, they will greatly desire to see. They will long to see just one of the days of the Son of Man, and Jesus says, and you will not see it. There will be some sort of delay between his first coming and his second coming. The period of time that Jesus intimated there that he hinted at is, is the time we are living in right now. This is the church age. We are living in the last days, the time between his first and second advents, his first and second comings. And as we read in verse 23, and as we know by our own experience, it is a time of great distraction, temptations to get sidetracked away from the main thing are abounding. Temptations to follow false leads, to pursue all kinds of dead ends. We can see in verse 24, another aspect to this, we can expect that following the Son of Man is going to be for us, if we're going to follow him, it's going to be a time of trial. It's going to be a time of suffering. It's going to be a time of rejection for the godly. The rejection the shame that we bear, the reproach that we bear for the sake of Christ, for naming his name. In verses 26 to 30, we can see that the time that we're living in, the last days, is going to be a time marked by worldly mindedness. People who are consumed, intoxicated, you might say, with temporal interests. They are idolaters who follow their own lusts. Those who are led around by covetous desire, they're like the sodomites of old who loved this world and their hearts are always adrift, unmoored, not anchored, and so they're always adrift, and that means they are ever descending into the grossest forms of immorality. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, that in the last days, difficult times will come for the godly. And so, knowing all of that, ahead of time, Jesus Verse says in Luke 18:1, Jesus told them a parable. He told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The parable is going to occupy our attention for today. So we want to start by reading that, but we'll also read its application at the end of the parable. But let's start in verse 1 with our reading. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith 
on earth? Leaves us with a question, something to ponder, something to reflect on for ourselves. If you were to return right now, what's the condition of your faith? If you measure it by your prayer life, what's the condition of your faith? We can divide that section of verses into three points. In verse one, we have the point. That's the point of the parable. And in verses two to five, we have the parable itself. And then in verses six to eight, we have the practical application. But first point for today, as I said, it's called the point. And the point is just quite simply, stay encouraged. The point, colon, stay encouraged. It's not common in our reading of the Gospels to, to, to get the key to unlocking the meaning of a parable before even reading the parable, but that's exactly what we see here. That's exactly what the narrator Luke has done for us, giving us the key to the parable before he even records the parable. He tells us in verse 1 exactly what the point is. He tells us what this parable is about so that we don't get off track. We don't lose focus. We don't misinterpret it. He says that the point of this parable, what this parable is about is that the disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's going to do the same thing in verse nine for that next parable, that next section. He's going to introduce the next parable by giving us the key, by telling us what it means, how to unlock it. But why does he do this? Why does he give us the key up front? Why does he record this? Why does he insert this into his narration? He hasn't done it before, but here he chooses to do this. Luke published his gospel somewhere between AD 60 to 62. That's the time of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And around that time, when he published this gospel that he'd written, Jesus had been ascended into heaven less than 30 years. Less than three decades had passed since he had gone to heaven, ascending bodily, physically in heaven with the Father right now. And so while traveling the empire and planting churches with Paul for about a decade, Luke saw all these early Christians, all these brand new Christians and these fledgling churches that are growing. And yet in the soil they were planted, whether it was the Greco-Roman soil, the Roman empire with all its paganism, or whether it was closer to Jerusalem, closer to home, so to speak, closer to Antioch, where he was probably from, closer to Paul's homeland in Jerusalem and Judea, taking, trying to take root in native Jewish soil, where there was so much hostility, so much persecution. These early Christians were in great, great need of encouragement, strong encouragement, deep, abiding encouragement to help them to persevere. The Jews were constant agitators, even chasing down the Christians, going from city to city. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that. They chased them down. They were like the hounds of hell, always nipping at the heels of Paul and his companions. Luke experienced some of that. The Greeks they were all too eager to rally against them, to be useful vessels of Satan himself to persecute and stamp out this gospel message. And so Luke, as he is addressing this gospel to his friend and benefactor, Theophilus, the man who probably funded the travel and funded the, the research and funded the writing of this gospel, 
Theophilus, Luke is thinking about him as he writes this. He's thinking about all subsequent readers of this gospel. And Luke wants to make sure that they understand and that there is no doubt whatsoever about what will carry them through this time of waiting. This time of waiting for Christ to return. Where did Luke get this emphasis in his thinking? Why is he added it here? He got this emphasis, no doubt, by watching the life of the Apostle Paul, who was a prayerful warrior. You can see that in every one of his epistles, how he, he talks about, he gives prayer reports and praise reports and thanksgiving reports, speaking to the churches about what he is, the subject of his prayers. He reveals his heart to them. In fact, I was just talking with a young man Wednesday night. We were, he was asking me, how do I, tell him, give me some tips maybe on how I can be praying in a more effective way. And I said, you know, if you want to, D.A. Carson wrote a book, I, I can't remember what it's called now, but it used to be called A, a, a Call to Spiritual Formation. But it was, it was basically praying through the letters of Paul, using the letters of Paul to guide your thinking as you pray. Let his prayers become your prayers and just change the objects of your prayers or the subjects of your prayers from the people he's praying about to the people that you know. Pray for us in this way is the way Paul prays. Luke watched that. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, watched his life, watched the prayer life of the missionary company. They subsisted not on food and water, but on prayer as they moved from place to place and sought the direction and the protection of the Spirit of God. They were men of prayer. That's the key to Christians thriving. That's the key to our fruitfulness as Christians. As we wait for the Lord's return in Luke 18.1, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up hope. Keep on believing. Stay encouraged. And how do you do that? By reciting the things that you know back to God in prayer. By reciting his word back to him in prayer. It reinforces what you believe. And it shapes the way you think. Pray always. For all things, in all circumstances, in light of a sure and certain hope. What is that hope? It's the certainty of Christ's return. This note in verse 1, it really does fit with Luke's purpose in writing. We saw this uh, just a little while ago, back in Luke 1, 4. He says, he's writing so that you, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. I want you, Theophilus, to have certainty, to know for sure. If all this is up for grabs, if the truth, and particularly the truth about the end, if it's not known, if it can't be known, if it's too mysterious, if it's a different genre and we just can't get to it unless you have several degrees, how does all that encourage praying? I can tell you it doesn't. It's certainty, confidence in the truth that will encourage and fuel your prayer life. The more confident you are about what you know, the Bible reveals about the certainty of what's coming. The more eagerly you pray, the more zealously you hope. Certainty, strong confidence in the truth. And particularly the truth, as Jesus has just taught us here at the end of Luke 17, about the end. 
This is the bedrock of all of our hope and confidence. It's the foundation of all of our praying. And listen, there is no virtue at all in eschatological agnosticism. That is, you know, that joke, I'm not pre-millennial, I'm millennial, post-millennial, I'm pan-millennial, I think it's all gonna pan out in the end. It's a funny joke, but don't make that your mantra for living. It's foolishness to be agnostic about what Christ has endeavored to be so clear about. There's no virtue in agnosticism. There's no virtue in willful ignorance. Don't be lazy. Read your Bibles, study your Bibles, and come to certainty in conviction because it will fuel your prayer life. And your prayer life must be strong so that you may stay encouraged and not lose heart. It's important, and we'll get to that. Whether Christians have waited for two or three decades like Luke and Theophilus had, or for two millennia like Christians today, they struggle to wait well. It's a struggle to wait in hope. It's a struggle to never lose heart, but to persevere in faith. That's the fight is in persistent prayer. It's the perennial challenge of the Christian life. As a pastor, I see this all the time. The Christians struggle to remain hopeful in the gospel, stay encouraged, keep standing firm, keep moving forward, all that fueled by a robust prayer life. That is what I see day in, day out as a pastor. It's my own struggle, it's my own fight, and it's a fight that I share with so many of you. In fact, in the past few weeks, I've encountered a number of Christians and several of them, many of them within our church who've been facing their own battles, struggles with weariness, with discouragement. Some have suffered an ongoing sorrow after death has visited their homes. Death, taking a loved one from their marriage. Some have been saddened by ongoing conflict from a Christ-rejecting family as their family loves the world and they find themselves on the outs with their own flesh and blood. They see their family embracing the world and its wicked ideologies, pursuing moral corruption, and it makes family gatherings and holidays just a bit more awkward, harder, sometimes even hostile. For Christians today, the workplace has become a battlefield as wicked ideologies have politicized absolutely everything. And now people's jobs are on the line. Not to mention, there's a sadness that I think all of us feel as we have a front row seat to the madness of the sexual revolution, the woke revolution, and all, as all this causes and sows confusion for coming generations of young people who are growing up with absolute lunacy, ludicrous thinking, inconsistency. They don't know how to reason anymore. We see the politically affected the politics in our nation. Things are not getting any better. We have to face the sad fact that our friends and our neighbors, they want all of this. Loving people that we've known for many years, many decades, they're voting in this immoral direction. Or at least they don't care enough about the way things are going to make any meaningful change in their voting habits and take a stand against it. We see all this happening all around us. Whether it's personal and striking close to home or whether it's cultural, social, political, whatever it is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cause for 
if you're not anchored in, there's a lot of cause for discouragement, a lot of cause for concern. We're certainly not oblivious to all that. We live in this world too. But enough hand-wringing, right? What's to be done about all this that we see going on around us? I mean, think about it this way. Were, were things really better for the early church planted in pagan soil? When you had emperors named Caligula, Nero, were those guys better than some of our politicians? What's to be done? Paul told Pastor Timothy exactly what's to be done. He gave him counsel on exactly what to command the churches he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, the Christians are to pray. They're to pray. First of all, then, that is not to say I've got a big list, and here's number one out of a list of 10. He's saying, of primary importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Is he talking about us putting the entire 7 billion people of the world on our prayer list? No. He's not talking about all people without exception. He's talking about all people without distinction. How do I know that? Because he's saying, I want you to be making prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people, even kings and those who are in high positions. You touch the throne when you pray. You realize that? You reach right into the sacred dark halls of Washington, D.C., into secret chambers, into secret meetings, and you affect what's happening there in prayer. It says, I want you to be praying for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, that section is not, get this, that is not about changing the culture. Our prayers are not about changing the culture. That's about the salvation of men. That's not about changing politics, not changing society. It's not about changing the culture. This is not about changing things through praying for better laws or limited government or lower taxes so that we can finally all live a peaceful and quiet life. I mean, if we just get Washington right, yeah, we'd have it easy. That's what we want is a peaceful and quiet life. Until we get that, we're going to war. Now, that's not, that's not the idea here. When we pray... We take matters of concern to our God, who is sovereign over all, who has the power to change the heart, should he will to do so. The hearts of all people and all kinds of people, even kings and all who are in high positions. The effect of our praying upon us, who cares? Leave it to the Lord to deal with them and whatever's happening there. We don't know his sovereign will. We don't know his plans. But the effect of that praying upon us is that when we unburden our hearts, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. To be a prayerful Christian is to be a peaceful and quiet Christian. To be a prayerful Christian is to be a godly, dignified Christian. When you see somebody who excels in praying, 
excels in believing and taking their, their hearts and their, their heart and their concerns to God in prayer, you're seeing a dignified Christian. You're seeing somebody who is worthy of emulation. You're not seeing somebody who's constantly wringing their hands and anxious and angry and churning and ready to pick up guns and fight and all that malcontentedness. That's not someone to follow. Paul tells Timothy to instruct men in particular, down a few verses in 1 Timothy 2, to lead out in prayer. They're not to lead out in heated political debate. Therefore, verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Men, focus all that energy and zeal on your personal holiness. Don't look out at the horizon and all the things that trouble you. Look no further than your own heart and watch Proverbs 4, 23 Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Focus your zeal on personal holiness, praying always so you lead a peaceful and quiet life, so you lead a godly, dignified life. Again, all these things we're talking about here, things that tempt us to consternation and worry and anxiety and even indignation and anger, all these trials, temptations, various forms of sufferings, all of these are the challenges that face those of us who, let's, let's face it, Luke 17, 22, we long to see just one of the days of the Son of Man. We're heart sick. We want Him. We want Him back. We want Him physically present. We want Him to put an end to all this chaos. We want it. We want it now. God says, wait. He says, I know, just wait. And in this time of trial, what's called the trial of waiting, the trial of waiting well, the trial of patiently enduring, however you want to write it down, this trial, it's made all the more difficult, isn't it, by the extended nature of it? Not knowing when all this will ever end, we're 2,000 years hence, we're waiting. That adds to the trial, doesn't it? when we don't know when it's going to end. Think about it just in your own life, whether it's physical pain, you got a chronic condition, or whether it's emotional pain, relational pain, issues in your family, and then you can't, especially in family issues, you can't do anything to change somebody else's will. I mean, for physical issues, you can, you can, you know, roll the dice and go to your doctors and, you know, physicians and try medicines and surgeries and all the things that we try to do to mitigate the suffering of our bodies. When it comes to suffering relationally with other people, there's only so much you can do because that other person has a will and has desires and has hidden motivations and thoughts that not making apparent to you. Chronic nature of the trial, whether it's unrelenting pain in any form, when you can't see the finish line, when there seems to be no end in sight, man, that just ratchets up the trial level to a, a level 10, doesn't it? At the risk of weakening this point, let me illustrate by an experience I've had just in, some, in a former life, military training, a bit of torture I was once subjected to. Uh, correction, I voluntarily subjected myself to this 
torture. So it was my own fault. Don't allow yourself to feel one ounce of sympathy for me because I don't deserve it at all. I chose this, but nonetheless, we were subjected to these evolutions that the instructors deceptively called conditioning runs, but make no mistake, they were torture sessions. I know exactly what was going on. These instructors would take our class out to, you know, you ever, you like to go to the beach? After these conditioning runs, there was a time when every time I looked at a beach, it made me curl up in a corner and suck my thumb. <laughs> but they'd take us out to the beach, and instead of running us on nice hard packed sand close to the water's edge, we ran in the soft sand, in and out of the dunes wearing steel plated Vietnam era jungle boots. And sometimes as we're lining up for one of these runs, knowing what's about to befall me, sometimes my heart would, I'm not a great runner, I'd, I'd, you know, I had to do it, but I don't really like it. But when we'd line up for runs, sometimes my heart would lift just a little, just a little bit of hope whenever I saw the instructor leading the run was built a little bit more like me. Somewhat stocky, big, thick legs, ran at a slower pace, and I'd think, hey, this won't be so bad. Nope. They were experts in making everything miserable. They could make a warm bath miserable. They could make a bowl of ice cream miserable. They had a knack for it. When this, this stocky, statured instructor got tired of running, he'd switch out with some guy who's built more like a gazelle, long and lean, and he'd take over. This is a guy who ran triathlons, marathons for fun. And I mean that like he would actually take vacations away from all of his hardcore work so that he could run more. I don't understand people like that. <laughs> so here's Gazelle Man running us up and down the beach. And when we come back to our starting point, he turn into the compound as if, okay, the run's finally over. I'm dying. I have no energy. Only to lead us right back out. He'd turn us in and then he'd ha 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 and lead us right back out onto the beach. Just run back in the soft sand, more running, conditioning to run at a faster pace. And that happened over and over and over again. Fake the end of the run just to break us down physically, but also to use that added feature of the unknown to break us down mentally. And believe me, he could hear my eggshell-like mind snapping every single time he turned back out. Some of our trials can be like that, right? And we know, intellectually, we know that we are learning to wait on the Lord. He's teaching us to wait patiently, to endure in hope, not knowing what the end's going to be. That we're to strive onward anyway in obedient faith. We're learning to trust the Lord in all this, to know that he's got it. He's a good leader. He loves us. He cares for us. And when he says it's conditioning, he doesn't mean torture. He means conditioning. He means strengthening. We're learning to know that he will call time on the trial whenever he deems best. And not before that time and not one moment after that time either. Interesting, isn't it, that the Father has chosen to keep the time of our Lord's return a secret? The most important thing to us, Peter says, though you do not see him, you believe in him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and hope with joy 
Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says concerning that day, that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So this aspect of the unknown, it adds another dimension to the trial, which is designed to test, get this, to test every single believer. Every single one of us are living under that same aspect of the trial that we don't know when it's going to happen. All of us living before Christ's millennial kingdom were subjected to the same trial. Why? Because it wants all of us to be ready, to wait in watchful faith, to live in joyful anticipation. It's what characterizes us as believers. We don't have to see to believe. We wait in faith. We're going to obey him even when we don't know the day and the hour. Watch therefore, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 13, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We've watched false professors of the Christian faith. We've watched false shepherds who are wicked at heart and they are exposed by the delay. They cannot, they cannot handle the delay. And so what happened, that's why we say time and truth go hand in hand. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. Why? Because the false can't come to the truth. They will just continue to go to seed. And then you will see their false fruits, their bad fruits coming out. The waiting exposes the false, exposes the wicked. They're exposed by the delay. Jesus taught this back in Luke chapter 12. We studied that. Verse 45, he talks about some of his servants they identify as his servants, but they aren't truly his servants. But knowing that the master is delayed in his return, what do they do? They're eating and they're drinking and they're getting drunk. And then they're turning around and they're abusing their fellow servants. They're bringing, by their behavior, by their, their wicked behavior, they bring reproach to Christ's good name. I've seen, I've just watched in my Christian life as one after the other of these so-called up-and-coming, cool, hipster pastors, edgy pastors, emergent church pastors, seeker pastors, whatever they are, whatever their innovative model of ministry is, one after another, they fall dead in the water. Why? Because their character catches up with them. Because their heart comes out. Time and truth go hand in hand. And their wickedness is exposed. And why? And, and, and what's exposing it? The delay. Even for true disciples, though, even for us, this time of waiting, it's a test for us too. And what does it do? It doesn't expose our wicked heart. I, I mean, it exposes some sinful thinking, right? But that's for our good so that we will repent and be sanctified. So God's strengthening us by this. Again, Luke 18.1, Jesus is telling us this parable to the effect for the purpose that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. That word ought in the text there, a wooden literal translation of the language there is, goes like this. And he was telling them a parable in order that, he's pointing to the purpose, in order that it is necessary, he's using a word for moral necessity, which is why the translation here is ought or should, but don't, it's a small word, so I just want to unpack it for you. He's talking about moral necessity. This is morally necessary for you always to pray, not to lose heart. Now, by always praying, Jesus is not referring to time. He's not referring to time, that every second that passes on your watch, 
you better be praying. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about us continuously praying, constantly verbalizing a stream of words to God. In fact, he condemns the Gentiles for doing that kind of praying, muttering all the time and repeating phrases and mantras and all those things. Jesus said to his disciples, you know, just to show that he was not always constantly praying and constantly, you know, engaged, he told them, sit here, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, sit here while I go over there and do what? And pray. Which means he had not been praying as he's talking to them, but he soon would be praying as he separates from them and prays to the Father. So Jesus isn't praying constantly, continually, muttering things all the time. He doesn't have one you know, line connected to God and he's praying all the time in his mind while he's talking to his disciples. He's not a multitasker. He's a human being like we are. We do one thing at a time. So Jesus means that we're to be praying, we're to be praying at all times, under all circumstances, in every situation. We're to be regular in prayer. And it's not simply about praying for the Lord's return, though it is at least that, Luke eleven two, 2, the Lord taught us to pray, what? Thy kingdom come. Okay, so we, that, is, that does feature in our prayers. Features in my prayers a lot. But in what seems like a delay in the Lord's return, we're to pray always, why? Because it's in the light of the hope of our Lord's imminent return, we have no reason to become weary in well-doing. We have every reason to pray and to seek his will, to find his help, to do his will. We're confident, we're hopeful, we're energetic, we're postured with a positive outlook for the future because we know that our God is guiding us in everything that we do. Exciting to be on doing his work, doing his will. So the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.18, we're to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, we're to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're to be persistent in prayer, persevering in prayer. And conversely, he's telling this parable in order that, and for the purpose of the moral necessity that we do not lose heart. It is a moral necessity that you and I do not lose heart. Don't become discouraged. That's the verb enkakeo. Actually, that verb has a darker meaning than just our concept of discouragement. You might tend to feel sympathetic towards someone who succumbs to discouragement, who feels weak of heart. But if someone is guilty in the actual sense of this verb, you wouldn't feel sympathy, you'd feel indignation toward this person. Why is that? Well, the verb enkakeo has at its root the, the word kakas, which means bad. And it can mean bad in two senses. It can mean the practical opposite of what is kalos, what is wholesome or sound or healthy. So it's kind of a bad in, in the sense that it's unhealthy, unsound. It's going to unravel your life. That's not good. But it's also the moral opposite of what's good, what is agathos, what is virtuous, what is true piety, what is pleasing to God. So the word kakos is a contrast to two words for goodness in a moral sense and in a practical sense. So this verb with kakos at its root, the verb enkakeo means to conduct oneself badly, to 
act badly in a given circumstance. And in, in a more particular, more pointed way, it refers to acting in a cowardly manner. It's, and it refers in context to soldiers who shrink back from doing their duty in battle. A cowardly soldier is not a sympathetic figure. By succumbing to fear, that soldier has not remained watchful when he's supposed to be on watch. He hasn't been awake when he's supposed to be awake. He fails to hold the line. And as a consequence, the enemy gets through and kills his fellow soldiers. There's no virtue in that. There's no excuse for that. It's his job to be watchful. It's his job to be a soldier. Lexicographer Cecil Speak, that's S-P-I-C-Q, Cecilus Speak, it's a Greek name. But he says that this verb indicates, quote, not so much a matter of omission as of relaxing one's efforts, losing heart in the midst of difficulties, letting go, interrupting one's perseverance before attaining one's goal, giving up rather than continuing the fight, end quote. It's cowardice. It's dropping the line you're supposed to hold. It's backing away when you need to press in. It's running away when you ought to be running forward. The way not to lose heart, to never let go, to keep at it and never give up is by remaining constant in prayer, by persevering in prayer. Even when it seems like prayer is having absolutely no effect at all. In fact, especially when it feels to you like prayer is not working, that's precisely what Jesus has in mind as he addresses his disciples here. Christians have been praying for 2,000 years. Maranatha, our Lord, come. Has he come? Not yet. Have their prayers been ineffectual, worthless, meaningless? No. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't allow yourself to believe it. Jesus intends to strengthen our resolve so that we never give up. So we never, ever give up. And again, according to that same source, Cecilus speak, he says the exhortation is to overcome lethargy, boredom, duration, even distress and tribulation. One must not give in. It's to overcome the succumbing to exhaustion. And on the contrary, to overcome fatigue and continue in prayer without yielding, without softening, end quote. Okay, so that's the point. Point number one, the point of our Lord's parable. Stay encouraged. How do we do that? Praying and don't be a coward. While we await the Lord's return, are we going to drift back into the world? No. Are we going to become lazy, self-satisfied, loving comfort and ease, refusing to strive, refusing to be uncomfortable in this life? No, we're not going to do that. Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions about today's message or anything else in the Bible, feel free to send us an email at letters at pillaroftruthradio.com. Also, plan to visit our website, pillaroftruthradio.com, where you can find many more helpful teaching series from Travis. Join us next time as we continue to learn to stand up and stand strong on Pillar of Truth. Mm-hmm.